Um, man, thank you all so much for allowing us to be here today. Um, it is truly a privilege to be able to hang out with you guys and uh, spend time with David and Danielle. Um, you guys have been a big, a big blessing to us uh, through your prayer support for us, uh, through sharing uh, many hours of your pastor with me as, as a church planning coach where he would try to help me and steer me in the right direction and uh, really, really took, man, such time. And we benefited from it greatly at the Axis Church. And also financially, you, you all were one of the very first churches who believed in us and uh, who support us monthly today. Uh, so we really thank you for that. That is big. You guys sacrificially give of your money uh, to Sojourn, and they give a percentage away to church plants. And we benefit from you guys having jobs and working and serving, uh, and we don't take that lightly. That is a big deal, so thanks a lot. I really, really appreciate it. And I don't want you guys to take for granted what you, what you have in, in Pastor David. Uh, man, he loves Jesus with everything in him, and, uh, and he loves his wife with everything in him. He loves his kids, and he loves his church. Uh, as far as a pastor, I don't know what more you could ask in a man. Uh, so don't take that for granted. That is, that's huge. Um, David's asked me to come and, and share a little bit of our story uh, in regards to planting the Axis Church in Nashville. Um, so I'm going to do that specifically highlighting God's faithfulness uh, along our, our journey. Um, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 6 to, to springboard off of. Um, so if you want to grab your Bible, you can, you can roll there. Um, this is where Paul uh, begins to break down for the church at Ephesus the armor of God. You know, uh, a lot of us are familiar with that. The breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. Well, he opens up the discussion of the armor of God with this verse. Ephesians 6, verse 10. It seems insignificant, but with it, we're going to spend a good amount of time breaking out from it the truth that's in it. So, um, so let's read it, and, uh, and we'll, we'll get to work on this. Ephesians 6.10, finally, closing his letter out, he says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Here Paul opens up this concept of how to better fight sin, how to daily struggle in living the Christian life. Let's pray and we'll hammer this out. Lord, um, I really need your help. I'm desperate uh, for you to... <clears throat> to speak through me now. Lord, um, would you be with the, the hearers as I'm first here? Would you speak to us today? Lord, would you cause anything that I say out of arrogance or pride or a desire to be accepted by these people or to be viewed as a funny man, would you take those things and push them to the side? And would you take the truth that's shared from your scripture and place it to the forefront of their mind, but even better, to the depths of their soul, and set us free this morning. Holy Spirit, we need you. Please do change us. We need hope. Give it to us. We need direction. Give it to us. Thank you so much, Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
All right, so Paul's basic point here is, again, can y'all hear me okay? Am I getting any feedback? Are we cool? Cool? If I'm cool, say uh-huh. Thank you. Okay. Um, so Paul's basic point here is that because Christians can't stand on their own against the spiritual forces, against demonic powers, they must learn, they must grow to lean on the power of the Holy Spirit that's within them, on the Lord's own strength and power. As Christ followers, you have all the power and strength needed because of the Holy Spirit at work within your soul. As a Christian, He's at work within your soul, giving you the strength needed to stand against these evil forces of temptation. You have the power needed to fight sin. You have the power needed to live for Christ each day. As a Christian, that's there. It's a gift. We should be killing sin and following Jesus more closely every day. The strength of every Christian lies solely in the Lord. God can overcome his enemies without our assistance. But we can't as much as defend ourselves without the power of his arm. We're so dependent upon Jesus. We're so dependent upon the strength and the power that he gives his followers. To be strong in the power of the Lord's might as Paul puts it, implies two acts of faith. First, it's a settled, firm persuasion that the Lord is almighty in power. Totally convinced. God is almighty. That's implied. The second thing that's implied in the Lord's mighty power is it implies a further act of faith that God is actively engaged in the defense of the Christian to bear them up amidst all the temptation and trials that will come their way during their life. That's what we lean on. We lean on knowing that God is powerful and in ultimate total control. And we lean on the fact that He's taking care of us. He's protecting us. He's helping us. That's what it means to lean on the power of the Lord's might. Paul didn't say to try harder. He didn't say lean on your own strength. As Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. But in all your ways acknowledge Him. And He'll direct your paths. He'll make your path straight. He'll help you along the way. It's with this conviction that Paul writes. This is the purpose of the Apostle Paul. This is what he wrote with. He wanted to hammer us off of leaning, against our, leaning with our own strengths. He wanted to, to beat us down from doing that so that we would only hold to God's almighty power and lean against Him, lean against the certainty of what Jesus Christ did and accomplished on the cross for us. Lean against that for your power and your strength. He knew how feeble the flesh was. Time and time again, you hear Him saying things like this, the things I want to do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, I do. Regarding His flesh, regarding his, Himself. But the strength that the power gives, you can fight those things. Not because you're on strength, but because the power that God gives you. Paul doesn't say to the early Christians, or to you today, to strive in your own power and to rely on your own strengths. Rather, he says to believe in what Christ did for you on the cross and to trust in Christ and His power. This is the hope that we have because of what Christ accomplished on the cross 
for our sakes. Being assured of this, the Apostle Paul drops this truth all through his letters. For instance, in 2 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, he says this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That your faith might not rest in the wisdom or the, the mind or the power of man, but rather in the power of God. Again in 2 Corinthians 1, 8-9, he says, For we do not want you to be ignorant brothers of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly pearl and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope, implying not on ourselves. In Him we have attached our hope and He will deliver us again. And then Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The point is, out of these verses and of what Paul was delivering to us, we can trust in God. We can hope in Jesus. We can more easily have faith in God because of His proven reliability. He is faithful. He will deliver His people. David said this in Psalm 62. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. Not God in something else. Not my hope is in Him and something else. In God alone, my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rest my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. The point again is that God can be trusted Rely on His strength and power, not your own. Your strength can be so subjective, here and gone, in but a second. God's strength and power at work within us is objective, it's constant, it's reliable, it's dependable, regardless of what you may face in this life. God can be trusted. Five years ago, I left the ministry. I left the day-to-day workings of church leadership. Um, at the time, I had worked about nine or ten years uh, in youth ministry, and, uh, and I just kind of tapped out because the church, not specific churches necessarily, but just the church in general that I had experienced kind of left me questioning a lot. And so I was like, man, you know, there, there's got to be a couple things here 
that are at work. Either one, my expectations for church are just a little outlandish. Maybe I have a little too high of expectation for what church should be. Because reading the New Testament, I didn't see hardly anything that resembled what we're doing today. Not here, but in five years ago in, in the th- things that I experienced. Or secondly, I thought what was at work was perhaps the church needed to truly repent and begin to model the bride of Christ a little bit more. So I went to seminary to try to figure out what was going on. That was, genu- that was a genuine search of mine. I wanted to go to seminary to figure out what was going on with church and then specifically how to plan a church. My journey in seminary taught me two things. First, it taught me that, man, how arrogant and foolish I was to think that my expectations were too high. When you consider that God's expectation for the church is holiness. So I was humbled. Second thing I learned in seminary is that indeed the church must repent. We must make it a continual habit to repent when there's sin that comes up in our life and begin to follow Christ more closely every day. And when we publicly offend someone, man, seek forgiveness in public. When you, when you man, totally let down your wife or your husband or your children, say so. Say, I'm sorry, I dropped the ball here. So I learned humility from thinking my expectations were too high. And I learned humility by something I've got to start doing more and more of personally before I expect it out of a whole church. So this is kind of my findings in in seminary. Two years later, while on vacation, I felt God stirring stirring in me a a call to a new work. At this point, I had gotten back into youth ministry, uh, which was good. I loved it. still love youth ministry. Um... But little did I know what we were getting into as we began to pray through what God had in store for us. It was a radical journey. It's still a ridiculous adventure. It's a lot of fun. So Jill and I began praying about, about what God was leading us into and how it would all go down and, and what would we do with this and, man, what about that? Do you, do you think, man, what about our kids' schooling? I mean, it was just so many different things we're beginning to think about. Will we have to move and I got an idea. Let's just pastor the church I'm at. We'll have the other pastor leave, and I'll move. I'll jump up to the varsity team off the, off, the, off the middle school, and I can preach to everybody. They're already there. The salary's set. I can get a car allowance. How cool. You know, and then I talked to the senior pastor about it, and he was like, nah, not a great idea. You know, it's, I probably would say the same thing. So anyhow, as we sat and we began to brainstorm, okay, if it's not to pastor this church where we're at, which would be, so convenient. What could God be calling us to do? And so we sat at our table in, in Charlotte, North Carolina, and we said, okay, we can stay in Charlotte. We can keep our kids at one of the better schools in Charlotte. We can keep our home. We can keep our vehicles. We can stay near friends and family. We can start with 100 people that will totally leave the other churches in the area, when they hear that Jeremy Rose has a church, they'll be so all about it, right? Until they realize how foolish I am and how lack of vision that was in trying to recruit people from other churches, how foolish and and wicked that is, then they'll probably bail. But it was flattering to think that we might have more than just my family to start a church with. 
So I figured, you know, we were done. This is what God wanted us to do. So we began to p- pray about it. I, I actually had a, a, a church website bought of NorthCharlotteChurch.com. Um, I was so just wanting to stay. We had two acres of land with deer and squirrels. Oh, man, what more could you ask for in life? It was awesome. You could pick them off your deck. It was great. <laughs> Instead, God had other plans in store for the Axis Church for Jeremy and Jill Rose. Instead, I traveled by myself between Charlotte, North Carolina and Nashville, Tennessee once a week, sometimes twice a week for four months. I had jobs in two states. It would take 15 hours round trip um, and sometimes I would drive that within a 24-hour period um, just trying to make this stuff happen, trying to get to Nashville, begin to meet people, begin to partner with people, share the vision, have people look at you like you're crazy. Nashville has too many churches already. You know, like, what are you moving here for? And, uh, and so just, just trying to explain all this. We had to move to a new state. We had to find a new home. We had to enroll our kids into a new school. We had to sell our home. We had to sell our new minivan, which was an 07 Honda Odyssey. It was a shagging wagon. The thing was awesome. I loved that vehicle. We had to start with five people. Three were my children, and my wife was the other one, and then I was the fifth one. We had to meet new people. We had to meet new neighbors. We had to meet new people in the community, at the restaurants, at the grocery stores. All these relationships that we had been leaning on were gone. This was God's plan. As we ventured out into the unknown, we learned just how really good God is and how much he can be trusted. This is just a little bit of what's been going on this last year. Little did I realize that God was using the 15-hour road trip to teach me so much about who he was, who Jesus Christ was and is, and what he expects from a preacher and a pastor today. I took over four classes on iTunes through different seminaries, listening to their, to their lectures. I used that time to learn. I used that time to network. That 15-hour road trip each week sometimes 30-hour road trip each week, was a gift from Jesus. I looked at it as something that was a hindrance. In all actuality, God was being so good to me. We have a great landlord, and our house that we're renting is in the, within the top three best neighborhood in Nashville, in the city. We didn't know that when we moved there. We have our kids in the best public school in Nashville. We didn't know that the house that we lived in, that we just happened to go rent because we were desperate, we didn't know that it was going to be whatever you call it. What's what's the word? Zoned for this particular school. We were actually at one point going to borrow my wife's dad's RV, park it at a campsite near Nashville, and allow me to commute in and out and let Jill stay at the campground with the kids every day during the summer. Because we had to get to Nashville. I mean, we were so close to making that happen. We stayed in extended stays so many days, so many nights. But what we didn't realize is that as inconvenient as it was and expensive as it was, God was uniting us as a family. 
He was allowing us to lean on each other. When Daddy had been so busy in the ministry, doing so many other things, studying so much other stuff, pastoring and discipling so many other people, God had totally eliminated that possibility because he loves Jeremy and he loves, his, loves Jeremy's family, that he allowed Jeremy the opportunity to begin to pastor his own family. Without that, I can't imagine what the Axis Church would be. You see, God can be trusted. We had to take over $11,000 to closing on our home. And God granted us every dime from two people. One particular man came up to me and said, after we'd already had a particular amount set aside, he said, what do you need to close on your house? I said, I think it's like $7,000, you know, in addition to the, okay, are you sure that's all? I was like, man, maybe 7100 I don't know, like somewhere around there. And he's like, okay. He pulls out a check that already been made out to Jeremy Rose, already signed. He wrote in the amount for $7,100, gave it to me. Tears come out of his eyes and said, you keep doing what you're doing. God is using you. I was questioning whether God was good because we had to take $11,000 to closing. But in all actuality, God was just flexing how good and powerful he was in that weak moment of mine. You see, God can be trusted. Someone gave us a GMC Suburban for free. It's phenomenal. It's a diesel, so it gets a little better than gasoline. It's phenomenal. It's a tank. It's indestructible. I love it. It's a great vehicle to have in the hood with tinted windows, okay? You couldn't ask. You couldn't ask for more. And we now have 50 people. We have 50 people who gather with us weekly at the Axis Church who are beginning to experience. It's just the beginning, but we're beginning to experience true, profound, genuine, authentic community. And it's beginning to reflect the church in Acts. And it is so radical to watch. And then I think back to my original plan. I remember how colorless and dreamless my, dream, my, my, my plan was. I was wanting to start with 100 people who had issues because that's, why they would only, that's the only reason why someone would follow you from another church is if they're tanked on their church and they're angry at their pastor. So they come to you with false expectations and as soon as you let them down, they're out again. That was my plan. And I was excited about that. Instead, God gives me 50 who are genuinely seeking community, who are being authentic, who are confessing sin, who straight up crazy stuff is happening. Like, Spirits are being pulled out of people. I know it seems crazy. Wild stuff is taking place. God can be trusted. He is so good. And He loves you very much. You can trust Him. Over a year ago, this week, I think it's odd that we're here. Well, by now I don't think it's odd. Everything's so crazy. But like, it's this week, a year ago, is when Jill and I left Charlotte when we, I took my last paycheck and began to work completely with the Axis Church and six other jobs, but s- stepping away from a, a full-time check. And God, over these last 360 days so far, He has been truly faithful. And I can tell you, man, God can be trusted. Sir, God can be trusted. It's okay to feel vulnerable when you look at Jesus. You can trust Him. The fact is that the thought of him ever not being faithful towards us never crossed God's mind. He was always going to be faithful to us. 
it never even, he never even considered it. He was just trying to figure out how to make it look awesome. It's important as Jill and I begin to reminisce on God's faithfulness. And as, particularly as you go through dry seasons. You might be in a dry season now. What's it, what we do, Jill and I, is we begin to reminisce over just how God's provided. What God has done over the years. I would encourage you to do the same thing. Just start listing things that you've seen God do. Go back to creation. If it's that bad, go back to creation. <laughs> Say, well, you know what? We know one thing. God created this stuff. All right, what's that tell you? He's created this for you to enjoy. You're together with someone you love, or you have friends in a community that you love. God is good. You have a car. You make in the top 98% of the world's income. Personally, you have, you make more than 98% of other people in the world as an average American. Whoa. You just begin to count God's blessings and see how he's been working in your life. And then when you consider this issue that you're up against, whether it be a lack of money or a hurt friendship, and you begin to see how God's used so many other things, you're like, you know what? Man, this is nothing for God. He's been so faithful. He can be trusted. God can be trusted. There have been many times where we really had no idea just how God would provide, but we never expected him not to provide because he had to, or else we would be in jail, okay? We would not be able to feed our children. Like, it got to be slim. God delivered. The comfort was to know that God was so faithful and trustworthy. And then as we, as we ponder how God would deliver us from this or that, Jill and I would sit back and have these discussions over this last year. And we would remember the Old Testament and New Testament miracles, how he provided for Abraham and Isaac, how he delivered Gideon with only 300 men, how he delivered Noah with an ark, how he delivered Jonah with a fish, how he delivered Joseph from slavery and made him... an influence to the king how he delivered the three Hebrew teenagers that were thrown to a fiery furnace a furnace is bad a fiery furnace is worse and they were delivered from a fiery furnace he delivered Lazarus from the dead Jesus gave new legs and muscle to those who were crippled he healed people of leprosy our God can be trusted he is good and he is powerful when you're in tough tight times in life when you're struggling the daily battle of fighting sin don't try to lean on your own strength lean on him he's good enough to handle it regarding our situation there were times where Jill and I had to say this is nothing for God somehow this is nothing for God there is nothing that's too tough for our Lord to work with. God can be trusted. This past year, we've seen God move. We've seen Him behave in magnificent ways. He's proven Himself over and over again. Time and time again, people would admire our faith. And they would say, our faith, yeah. And they would say, you all inspire me. How do you just go sell everything and move to a new city where you don't know anybody? And they say, I just don't know how you do it. Most of the outsiders look into our situation and stand in awe of our faith, but we look at it much differently. How could we not trust God? 
knowing how clearly He called us to do what we're doing, it's just doing it. Because we believe Him. How can we for a single second begin to take credit for our faith in what God has done when God is just being God and we're resting in that? It's not a matter of our faith. It's a matter of just knowing that He's God. And if He's called you, He will totally take care of it. It certainly wasn't about our faith. It was about Him being God and only doing the things that He can do because He can be trusted. Yesterday on our way into town, Jill and I were discussing this. As we were driving up, sitting excuse me, sitting through traffic, coming up from, the, from Destin. Holy cow, wrecks everywhere. We were, it took us like 10 hours, 11 hours to get there, get here. And uh, so we had time to talk through my sermon a little bit. <laughs> and, uh, and, and we were discussing this. And, and I said to Jill, I said, you know, some people take credit for the wins and they blame the losses on God. Some others, they'll give the glory to God for the wins and they absorb the blame for the losses. That's not fair either. The gospel of Jesus Christ says that the victories are now shared victories. As an heir of the king. And the ultimate consequences of our failures. The blame for our losses. were all absorbed by Christ on the cross. God can be trusted. You may wonder what you mean by absorbed by Christ on the cross. You see, because of our sin, we are so separated, totally separated from God. The truth is, we're more unlovable and sinful than we ever imagined. Yet we're still more loved than we could ever dream. That's the hope we have in the gospel. On our own, we can never be good enough to be declared righteous before God. But being declared righteous, that's the goal. Being declared righteous is what we aspire for. Being declared righteous is the only way to have true, ultimate hope in this life and in the life to come. John 3, 16 and 17. Phenomenal passage of Scripture. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't come to hate. He didn't come to point His finger at you and tell you that you're sorry and that you have to absorb the blame. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake He made Him, God made Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Perfect. You see, God can be trusted. He sent His Son to prove that. He sent His Son to suffer and die on the cross in our place for our sins to bring us to God. Justified. To say, here they are, and they're perfect. They're just like me. He's our propitiation. He's our wrath Absorber. The cross is where we see Jesus suffer the consequences of our sin. Propitiation is a theological term that Paul used. And it's, it's like a, a wrath-absorbing sponge that absorbed every bit of God's judgment that we deserved. Yet Christ took it in our place. So as this cup of suffering is poured out, 
Jesus Christ on the cross absorbed it all. So there's no more condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Don't take, don't, don't try to take the blame for the consequences of your actions. You have to live with consequences, definitely. But the ultimate blame Jesus took on the cross. God can be trusted. It's a free gift. Justification is a free gift, as David was mentioning earlier. And it's given to those who are humble enough to recognize that they can never become righteous enough, good enough to meet God's holy and perfect standards. He removes the guilt and declares us innocent, not because of anything that we can do, but because of what our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ, did for us on the cross. You see, God is good, and He can be trusted. I want to close with this one story. Many of you have probably heard this, but it's just phenomenal. Some say that some say that you have to run at least 25 miles per week for at least a year to adequately train for one marathon, to be able to run it well without hurting yourself. As you can see, I'm not a marathon runner. Rick Hoyt has finished 229 triathlons. That's a lot. Six Ironman distances. Six half Ironmans, 20 duathlons, 66 marathons, 26 Boston marathons, 8 18.6 mile runs, 84 half marathons, 120K, 35 10 milers, 37.1 milers, 8 15Ks, 212 10Ks, 149 5 milers, 4 8Ks, 18 4 milers, 108 5Ks, 8 20 milers, 2 11Ks, and 1 7K. He biked across the U.S. in 1992, 3,735 miles in 45 consecutive days. Later, he biked across the states of Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts. Same year. In 1995, he biked from Pittsburgh to D.C. on a simple week's ride. What's crazy about this story is not this guy is a freak of nature in his ability to run and ride and swim. What's crazy is that, that Rick has cerebral palsy. He can't walk, talk, feed himself, dress himself, or even use the bathroom by himself. He could never cross the start line if it depended solely upon himself. He only competes and finishes these events because of his father. In every race, it was his father sacrificing training, blood, sweat, tears, and time to get his son across the finish line. In the runs, he would put him in a, a basically a, a, like an athletic wheelchair that he would lean on and run with. In the swimming, he would put his son in a canoe and swim for the Ironman. In the bikes, he would put him in a cart behind him or beside him or in front of him so he could get a beautiful view of the world. This is so much like our story. We're guilty before God by birth and by choice, incapable of doing anything to atone for our sins, to pay for our sins, to make our sin right before God. Yet God, who is rich in mercy, justice, and love, sent Jesus to suffer unlike any other in our place and to die 
in our place for our sins. Thus He earned us a spot as righteousness in the eyes of God. We have a place in heaven as our home. We have a comforter, the Holy Spirit, who's with us to help us fight sin in this life. He's rescuing us from our sin, our death, and our godless eternity, even though we never, even though He never Himself sinned. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Jesus is wonderful. Jesus is evidence that God can be trusted. In closing, I want you to know one thing. God can be trusted. Ephesians 6.10, as Paul puts it, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Why? Because He loves you so much. So much more than you could ever imagine. And He could be trusted. Let's pray.